If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Liz Russell is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. This weekend, the clocks move forward one hour. That's one less hour of sleep. And one less hour to wear your mask. Here's Scott Wilson. He's a cheeky boy, isn't he? Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. Will Weber is on the board. Diana Weeks, Dave Woodard in the newsroom. Feel free to join in the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the poll question, or sorry, uh, you can send us a note. Uh, and also call us at 905. Hang on a sec. No! Uh, 905-645-3221. It's like Grand Central Station in here. 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Friday edition of Hamilton Today. It's an all-request Friday, something you want to hear. Heading into uh, a March break and the second anniversary. Is it the second or the third? Is it the fourth or the fifth? of uh, the COVID, uh, COVID-19 uh, global pandemic. Uh, that should help us. Uh, what an interesting day this is going to be. We're going to talk to some old friends about all of this coming up uh, a little later on as well. Lots going on, and feel free to uh, be a part of it. Uh, we would love to hear your feedback, as always. Uh, poll question of the day today. And, uh, you know, we, we heard about this the other day, that uh, there was the odd organization that uh, wasn't happy about the lifting of the mandatory uh, masking uh, legislation. And again, that you, you're still allowed to wear a mask. It's your choice now. It's just nobody's uh, making it mandatory for you to wear a mask. Uh, and this is after uh, March 21st, by the way, in Ontario. Although British Columbia, as of today, their masking mandate is gone. So uh, with the exception of high-risk areas, B.C. has beat Ontario by about 10 days and uh, has lifted its mask mandates uh, as of uh, today, Friday, and will follow, uh, do the same thing Ontario's doing, uh, come uh, after March break, and that is uh, the kids will be heading back to school uh, again with the mask being option. It's not like you have to take it off. You can keep it on if you want. It's just that it's not mandatory uh, anymore. So uh, obviously that's, you know, there, there's as much controversy or as much, and it's understandable, uh, there's as much um, uh, debate about taking these off as there were uh, putting them on. That being said, poll question of the day, do you support the Hamilton Public School Board's decision to keep the mask mandate for students and staff until August 15th? 64% of you are saying no. Uh, so, yeah, it's interesting where uh, this is sort of coming from, considering where we are. Uh, and it was interesting. I had somebody say, uh, a doctor of all people, say the other day who was not happy with the mask mandates being lifted, uh, the mandatory mask mandate being lifted, uh, saying that, you know, we have more cases now than we did when we started the mask mandate, which is is so distorted it's beyond belief because when we started the mask mandate we did not have a vaccine we didn't even know what this was all about uh and and the variant that that started all of this 
uh, was running rampant through long-term care, killing people left and right. So to compare that to the number of cases we have now with a variant that is extremely mild, however highly contagious, which is why it is the dominant variant and pushed the others aside, uh, and now we have over 90% of the population vaccinated. So that is why the decisions are made. And to even compare those two, I think, is uh, is 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 biased. I think it's factually incorrect. Uh, anyway, that's my opinion, and we are where we are, and uh, the Hamilton District School Boards have decided that uh, they are going to keep this going until uh, April 15th. I'm not sure what the legalities are there, like if kids go to school and say, well, we don't have to do this. I- I'm not sure exactly what... Uh, the ramifications uh, will be. But again, it's easy to see why after two years of this, there is as much uh, anxiety and apprehension taking them off as there was when we uh, were were putting them on. But again, uh, you have to look as Dr. Bonnie Henry said from British Columbia yesterday when they announced what their plans were going to be and dropping the mask mandates as of today, 10 days ahead of Ontario. She said, we've, you know, they've got like over 90% of their population vaccinated. So, um, and, and again, the virus is, is simply, uh, although way more transmissible, it's nowhere near as dangerous. And we're seeing that with the constant reduction in, uh, in hospitalizations and such. Now, March break, uh, you're going to see it uh, go up. Yeah, you probably will if the last two years are any indication. But again, it doesn't mean those cases are any more severe, uh, than the ones that we currently have now. Uh, obviously, if things change, if there's new variants, that's something to think about. But, um, you know, we are where we are with this. And, and the facts of the matter is it is it is slowly declining in Ontario due to and Canada due to the high vaccination rate. That being said, it is the second anniversary uh, of this. Uh, apparently it was today that we uh, all started today on this day, rather. Uh, two years ago that we all started talking about this and uh, the rest is history as they said I, I, I said this uh, I told the story yesterday I remember the kids were home for uh, spring break and I was at work and, and our boss saying to us you're going to be out of here by the end of the week and I, I remember just laughing and thinking no that's not going to happen uh, and first of all I didn't think we could do it <laughs> but technology is king and and here we are so and a lot of stuff has changed since then i mean you know uh, again back at the beginning we thought we could eat and drink our way out of this uh and i don't care what anybody says after two years of being in this nothing will be the same everything has changed in some way as a result of this and you know we're certainly seeing this now as we come through the latter stages of this the cases are going down and the protocol is slowly being removed um we are where we are. And it was funny because I remember saying and, and talking to epidemiologists way at the beginning of this in the first few weeks, in the first few months, and we were trying to figure out, everybody was trying to figure out where this was going, what it was, what in fact it really was all about. Uh, and we started talking about pandemics then. And I remember many saying, you know, if it's a, if it's, if it's a global pandemic, it's a two year thing and blammo, look at this. Here we are. Man, day 16, Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine. It appears that uh, the convoy that we saw build over the course of time and then stall is repositioning itself. What does that all mean? Let's bring in Christian Leprecht, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. He is with us now. Christian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, good afternoon from Vancouver. 
Oh, good for you. Very nice. Uh, first of all, your thoughts on the repositioning of this convoy. It's been the center of attention for the longest time, first because it was there and then because of its inactivity. Uh, your thoughts on what we're seeing now and, and what's happening? The Russians had to, I mean, the convoy was a supply logistics issue. And so eventually they would have to move the convoy because it was also obviously a clear target uh, for Ukrainian defenders, but they would want to use those assets. So it obviously took some time to be able to get the petrol, to get the food and to solve some of the communications issues that have been plaguing this convoy in particular. But it was also becoming one of many propaganda liabilities for the Putin regime in this war. And so that's the other reason uh, they had to get that convoy going again, because after all, that convoy is meant to achieve the first and foremost overarching objective that Putin has for this invasion and this war, which is to take Kiev and to affect regime change in Kiev. Um, and so it, this, this, uh, it became, um, it, it became a, I think this, the convoy became and will, after this is all over, be the symbol about um, how unwise and how dysfunctional um, Putin's regime and his decision-making with Ukraine uh, was, is, and unfortunately will continue to be. We're hearing the words chemical weapons being used. What, what's that all about? Why has this come up? Yeah, so there's two forms of escalation here. Uh, we in the West need to get ready for horizontal escalation. I think we will be starting to see some very serious cyber attacks and attempts at least on our critical infrastructure uh, as well as on the uh, on the private sector. And there's going to be horizontal escalation uh, in the Ukrainian conflict, either um, the more frustrated Putin gets and the more ineffective his troops get, um, you know, especially as morale sort of declines, uh, not just from people who don't want to be there to begin with, but who realize the extreme sort of humanitarian disaster that they're causing. Um, and the uh, dropping morale among Russian troops, it means the only option left for Putin to escalate will be to use non-conventional weapons, so biological, chemical, uh, nuclear, um, uh, as well as possibly other types of conventional weapons that are banned under the Geneva Convention uh, in order to achieve his aims. And if he's up against one and a half million potential defenders in Kiev um, and they can't achieve their objective by conventional means, I would not put it... uh, um, I, I think there's risk that Putin might resort to other means to achieve that objective. If, if uh, Christian, if, if Putin is having such a difficult time taking Ukraine, how can he take the rest of Europe or other portions of it? Well, the Russians have some very mean weapons, so they might not be able to take the rest of Europe. But I think there is a sense in the Kremlin that the more pain the West imposes on Russia, he will retaliate by imposing pain or at least attempt to impose pain on the West. And so one ready way for him to do that is through cyber, but there are also, of course, conventional means uh, through cruise missiles, through hypersonic missiles, as well as through tactical nuclear weapons and, in a worst case scenario, strategic nuclear weapons. Um, and so it's um, the, the, so I think we haven't seen the end of this yet. Um, and uh, Putin, I think, feels quite beleaguered in his current situation. Um, and we need to pay all the more attention and we need to be resilient against uh, uh, Russian attempts to uh, extort us and to punish us um, as a society. But I think we need to be prepared that 
this conflict is not going to end on the front lines in Ukraine. It is one way or another going to involve us all, whether kinetically in cyberspace or um, unconventional weapons. Uh, getting back to the Ukraine invasion, Ken, because it, you know they've done what they've done over the last what sixteen days. Can can they win this? Obviously, uh, President uh, Zelensky is promoting that, and of course he has to. That's you know that that that's the position he's taken on this. But but can Ukraine win this, or is it is the worst yet to come? Putin has to win. The Ukrainians just don't have to lose. So they have to demonstrate that they are prepared to stick this out for whatever long it takes and that their resilience is uh, it will will prove stronger than that of their attackers. Because ultimately, if you think about, for instance, Afghanistan, uh, it's not that the Russians were defeated. It's that the Russians capitulated and ultimately retreated. And so that's going to be uh, a battle for the morale and hearts and minds of the troops that are fighting on the front line and demoralizing them uh, in what they're being asked to do. And it's going to be a medium-term battle for the hearts and minds of the Russian population that is, of course, uh, also suffering tremendously under um, um, under Putin. So, I, But I, I'm afraid that that will be take a medium-term, and so we're likely going to be at this conflict for many months given how much of a, an impasse mm. and a stalemate overall we, we find ourselves in. Wow. Uh, how, how concerned should Canada be about Russia in the Arctic? The Arctic used to be flyover country for Russian strategic ballistic missiles. Um, uh, now it's become flyover country for hypersonic missiles, but it is also now a contested space. It is actively being contested by Russia and it is actively being contested by China. So we need to remember that as Canada, we don't just have an active front uh, through our NATO allies with Russia in Europe. We have an active front uh, with Russia in the Arctic. That might not be a full-on confrontation, but make no mistake uh, that the Arctic is now an active geopolitical space as is its counterpart in the Antarctic uh, for both our uh, Russian and Chinese um, rivals, mm. and that they will, um, there's a very real risk that they will exploit that space um, in order to throw us off our track when it comes to uh, keeping our eyes on the ball in Europe. Christian Leprac with us, professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Scott. Wishing you a good weekend. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've certainly heard a lot about sanctions. Are they working? Do they have an effect? Uh, the oligarchs now uh, sanctioned. Apparently, that's going to have more of an impact. Um, does it? Will it? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor at DeGroot School of Business, McMaster University, and is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm great. Glad to be with you. These sanctions, Marvin, your thoughts on this, how much damage does it do? Well, let me come at this in two different ways, if I can, Scott. Uh, certainly, the Russian economy today is very much in shambles. Uh, just to give you a sense, you remember last Wednesday, the Bank of Canada raised our prime interest rate from a quarter percent to a half a percent. In Russia, the prime interest rate is 20, 20 percent. Think about that if you're looking for a mortgage. The value of the ruble, which was around 1.2 cents U.S., is now three quarters, uh, 0.34, 0.75, excuse me, 
cents U.S. It, you can now buy about 135 of them if you have a U.S. dollar. Means imports are are just not possible, or at least not affordable for the average Russian citizen. And then as well, we've seen not only sanctions from countries, but sanctions from companies in the West. So almost all of them have shut down, or at least mostly shut down. Uh, their operations, whether this is Starbucks or Coca-Cola or Nike or Adidas or Apple, they've all said we're, we're out of Russia. So you're actually also now seeing Russian refugees crossing into Finland, crossing into Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, who are fearful of what's happening in their own country. And yet none of the sanctions have stopped Vladimir Putin. He seems to be on a mission and he doesn't seem to take any interest in what this is doing to his own country, which is now definitely mired in a recession. What about oligarchs? So that, does this have any impact? Uh, apparently, uh, these uh, that, that his circle has gotten smaller and they don't have the control they once did. Is that accurate, do you know? Yeah, I think, I think that is accurate. Now, the whole idea behind the sanctions was to get the Russian people themselves or these oligarchs who, who more likely have Vladimir Putin's ears to say, hey, Vlad, we've got to change tack here. This isn't working for us. You know, look at look at the pain I'm suffering. Uh, it seems, though, that he's not prepared to listen to them and he's not prepared to respond to them. His answer is just hold on a bit longer. Give me another week or two. And in his mind, he'll have defeated Ukraine by then. And then we'll mop up and everything will get back to normal. Um, I, To be frank with you, Scott, and I, I really hate to say this out loud, I think today the allies are hoping that maybe we might even see a mini Russian revolution to have the people rise up and remove Vlad. And on one hand, I think that might be good, but only if the person who replaces him has a different view around Ukraine. In other words, if you got rid of Vladimir Putin and you replaced him with somebody else and that person was also bound, bent and determined to subjugate Ukraine, we haven't gained anything from the exercise. We hear lots that, uh, obviously, the, the state-controlled media there is trying to keep the message, uh, what's really happening out, but it is getting in. Do you see a potential Russian revolution here where they could decide, hey, this isn't what you sold us and we're taking over? Yeah, I mean, I, I think almost anything is possible, Scott. You know, again, if, forgive me to draw a terrible parallel to the Second World War, I didn't live through it. You didn't live through the Second World War. But in those days, the source of news was uh, the newspapers. And you'd have reporters and they would submit a story. It'd be wired and you'd get the results two or three days later. This is the first major war, at least in my lifetime, that we've been able to see this on almost a minute by minute basis. And coverage can spread not just to the allies, but to people inside thanks to the power of the internet and smartphones and what have you, it's almost impossible to keep the news out of Russia. So the pain they're feeling, they're not going to realize it a month from now or two months from now, they're feeling it right immediately. And I just don't know how people are going to respond. Certainly there are some who believe the story that Vladimir Putin puts out, much like we saw people who believed any of the stories to draw another terrible parallel that Donald Trump put out during his presidency. There are some who believe him. There are some who don't. Whether there'll be enough to rise up, I, I just wouldn't want to take a bet on it. What about Russian oligarchs and their uh, uh, influence in Russian steel and that ends up in Canadian pipelines? 
Yeah. Well, so let me just put a fine point on that. We're talking about a company in Regina, Saskatchewan, known as Evraz, E-V-R-A-Z. It's a Canadian steel company in the sense that they make the steel in Canada. They're not using Russian steel per se, but the owners of Evraz, if you look at the majority owners, there are five or four Russian oligarchs, the biggest of which is a gentleman named Abramovich. You might know that name. He's the same uh, oligarch who owns the Chelsea Football Club yeah. uh, in uh, British Premier League soccer. Um, and, and of course, we're saying, well, wait a minute, you know, you, you, we've got to uh, uh, sanction your holdings and pull you back. Evraz Steel, which also has British operations and is traded on the British stock market, has lost 90% of its value because the assumption is they're going to be blocked from these different things. But we're actually using Evraz Steel uh, to build the Trans Mountain Pipeline. We're using it in the Northern Gateway Pipeline. It was also supposed to be used in the Keystone XL Pipeline. And for the people of Saskatchewan, that was great news. I realize we would have preferred that Hamilton Steel be used, but at least it was 1,700 Canadian steel workers in, in Regina. But now what do we do? And, and this is the interesting challenges when you have a truly global economy, people from other parts of the world can own chunks of Canadian companies. What if we don't like them anymore? What does that mean? And I don't think our government's got a good answer. Again, they're hoping that uh, these things will happen fast enough that maybe they don't have to deal with it. Uh, can you see a change in whether it's NATO defense spending policy or our energy policy as a result of all of this? Well, those are two quite different things. So the NATO policy, you'll remember that even Donald Trump a couple of years ago went to NATO and he basically yeah. said to all of the nations, you're freeloaders, you know, we're spending all of this money and you're not spending enough. We want you to spend, I believe the magic number is 2% of your GDP on uh, defense. And even countries like Germany and France said, well, you know, we're kind of doing that. And we look at on-kind or in-kind contributions. It's not necessarily dollars. And everyone's dragging their feet. Certainly, Vladimir Putin's done something which which Donald Trump couldn't do, and that was unify NATO. And I won't be shocked when the new budget comes down in roughly three weeks from now that we may see defense spending spending enhanced. Whether we'll get to the two percent level, I don't know. But this is a good reminder of why we need to spend on defensive systems. Now, in terms of energy policy. Uh, it becomes an interesting question, you know, on, on one hand, we'd like to build more pipelines and that would allow us to get oil to the coast or natural gas to the coast where we could export it to other nations that need it. And yet, on the other hand, if you believe that all the major car companies are going to be producing electric vehicles by the year 2030, which is eight years from now, would that be enough time to get a return on that pipeline investment? So, you know, energy policy, yes, I think it will change to some extent. But I, I don't think you'll see as big a change there as you would on defense spending. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. As always, Marvin, thanks for the time. Be well. I will. Glad to be with you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
We certainly know about uh, the hell that is going on in Ukraine. And uh, again, just talking to uh, Christian Leprec not too long ago about uh, what is happening there. And I, I think what's really had just a massive impact on everybody is just the images we're seeing of uh, these people that were leading uh, pretty much a normal life up till about 16 days ago. And now with everything that they can uh, grab, they're on the move. Over 2 million uh, Ukrainians have, have left uh, the country and, and flee to various areas and bordering uh, states and such. Poland just doing a miraculous job of, of, of bringing all of these people in and trying to, uh, to help them in some way. And lots is help is happening locally as well within the Ukrainian community, uh, community. And a Beamsville based winery has been accepting supplies to send to Ukraine. We want to introduce you to William Roman, manager of Rosewood Wines and is with us now william thanks for the time i hope you're well i'm doing very well all things considered at least um, thanks for having me on, on the show tell us about rosewood wines so we're rosa we're a family um winery and meadery so we make honey wine and grape wine um my family were ukrainians and uh so i'm third generation ukrainian um born here in canada and we speak ukrainian we're fluent in ukrainian we're very active in the ukrainian community um, but we're beekeepers first and foremost so there's 90 years of beekeeping in my family's history um, that I work with now on my father, and we actually keep these to make honey wine and honey and grape wines from our vineyards, and that's basically rosewood in a nutshell. So this has been uh, a multi generational uh, winery in in your family for years. Yeah, we've been open for um, just just over fourteen years now. We've been open to public. Um, we've been uh, established in two thousand and three when we planted the vines in the ground, and that's when we moved our bees down to Niagara. Um, in that time when we had now a building and vineyards planted. Prior to that, my grandfather my, my grandfather and grandmother and my father, um, they had a bee farm uh, up in Nobleton, Ontario. So that's where they were there for about 40 years keeping bees um, prior to us expanding to now viticulture and grape growing. Uh, and that was just done because it was a dream to make honey wine for my grandfather. He wanted to have a commercial meat operation and never was able to do so because he was an immigrant to the country. Um, he never had a bank loan and no bank ever supported him. And so he could never get an AGCO um, awarded honey wine license. And so that dream kind of stopped until my father picked up again and away we go. Wow. What a great story. Uh, explain honey wine. Honey wines, it's uh, literally that. It's a wine made of honey. So we take honey and water, ferment the two together, um, and it comes out with this beautiful elixir of honey flavors with um, alcohol notes to it. So some sweetness, a little bit of acidity, um, and we can then manipulate it in any kind of way that we want. So we can put it into French oak barrels. We can put it into old bourbon barrels. We can put it into Calvados barrels. Uh, we can ferment it with fruit. We can put fruit into it after. We can add spices to make it kind of like a warm cinnamon style Christmas drink. So we can have a lot of, uh, lot of fun with it just because there's no regulation around it in terms of what we can or cannot do to a honey wine product. Uh, rosewoodwine.com to find out more. And uh, we're going to have you back and ask you about that. But first, let's get to the whole Ukraine situation and what your family is doing and what you guys are doing to help out. Yeah, so um, we're not a political platform at Rosewood. We never have been. We try to keep our personal beliefs and and issues um, away from public light because we're here to make wine and make people happy. You know, they're not coming to us to ask for our political views or our religious views and anything like that. 
And when this war broke out on that Wednesday evening, so this is now going back 14, 15, maybe 16 days ago, um, it's it really was a turning point and it hit me really close to home because we still have family there. So I've got family on my mother and father's side. My wife is Ukrainian. She actually immigrated to Canada when she was five years old and she has family in Ukraine and friends living there still. And it really shocked the world and shocked us instantly. So we didn't sleep for the first week. No one I knew slept and everyone's freaking out and having really bad panic attacks. And I couldn't stop myself from starting to post about it and to talk about the war and what was going on. And within a day and a half, I just blurted out, we're going to accept donations and I'm going to get it onto a plane and get it out, get it out there to help because I felt helpless. There was this massive sense in me that I, I can't sit here idly and do nothing about this because there's people whose lives have been thrown upside down and have been completely devastated by this ridiculous conflict. How's and your family doing do something? How's your family doing that's there? So some parts of my family have the females and, and young children have been able to get into Poland and um, the males are unfortunately still in Ukraine. So um, President Zelensky has issued martial law where any men that are of the age of 18 to 60 aren't allowed to leave the country um, with the hope that they would help defend the country. And so um, all the males have have been uh, have remained there. Um, and my cousin-in-law, he's got a cousin who's living north of cave where the major column is now approaching cave center and he's in that city that they're right now sitting in um, and he's in the middle of this conflict currently and so half the family's safe the other half is fighting and it's it's oh, a very hard time to say oh least. my goodness uh, I, I can't even imagine what you're going through as, as you watch this all progress. Uh, if people want to find out more, rosewoodwine.com, rosewoodwine.com, uh, all the details there on how you can f- uh, help Wilman, uh, William Roman and his family help those uh, that need your help in Ukraine. William, thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much for the story. Uh, good luck with all of this, and our hearts and, and minds are with you through all of this. Um, be well. You're most welcome, and thank you so much. Conservative race is uh, now underway. I've said this the last couple of days. I, this is this thing is six months away. It's six months till the conservatives choose a new leader. I cannot believe the media frenzy and everybody talking about uh, all of the candidates and who's going to be. Uh, it's quite surprising. But I also want to talk to Michael Tobe today about uh, the Justin Trudeau Operation Photo Op Tour. Uh, and I want to play you a clip of a tweet. This is from CBC's Travis Danraj, and he did this a couple of days ago, and he was questioning Melanie Jolie and Christia Freeland on why they were all in Europe and, and, and what the purpose of it was, and boy, did they dress him down. Listen to this. A lot of Canadians are back at home kind of wondering and watching this trip and seeing a lot of photo ops, a lot of broad platitudes, and not many specifics when it comes to, to details. Uh, why couldn't these meetings been done from Canada? Why does the Prime Minister, the Deputy Prime Minister, the Minister of Foreign Affairs and Defence Minister need to be in Europe right now when there are a lot of domestic issues at home that are very important? And some people view this as a, as a photo op trip to Europe. Well, I, the only person I've heard saying that is you. Um, but, there are many people that are but, that are saying that. But let me just say that this is a really, really important trip for the Prime Minister and for Canada. Just, just to say, I, I, you know, I reject your question. Yeah. Uh, and, and you can't reject the question when a, when a, a 
a journalist asks you a question, you can choose not to answer it, but you really can't reject the question. It's already been put forth. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, uh, the arrogance uh, when a CBC reporter asks a, a very good question of which there's been lots of columns written on is uh, is just astounding. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, columnist for Troy Media, Looney Politics, contributor to the National Post, Washington Times, speechwriter for the former uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper with us now. Michael, what are your thoughts when you hear that? I, you know, I just thought, well, your thoughts. Yeah, no, I mean, your thoughts are very similar to my thoughts. It was arrogance. I had no issue with the question, and it has nothing to do with partisanship. If it was asked of a Tory government, an NDP government, whomever, it's a legitimate question, and it, it, you're right. If the if Christia Freeland and Melanie Jolie didn't want to answer it, that's fine. You either don't answer it or you try to spin it away. That's what their job is. They're politicians. That's what they're supposed to do. You know, that's what basically people on the outside who are ex-speech writers and staffers, of which I qualify, that's what we were basically brought in there for, to create answers that make sense or move the narrative back to a particular angle, side, position that you want. The fact that Christia Freeland, and what I noted, and I just noted it simply on Twitter, but I'll sort of summarize it quickly, is very, very early on when uh, when Dan, Travis Danarush asked the question, you see Christia Freeland from about, I forget exactly, seven seconds to 14 seconds in his video clip, if you want to look on it on Twitter, you'll see her sort of sigh and do a slight eye roll as if, oh, I have to answer this sort of question. Yeah. Christia Freeland is experienced enough, Scott, that... You know, whether she likes the question or not, she's got to answer it. But this is unfortunately the arrogance that this federal liberal government has when it comes to anything that doesn't follow their point of view or present an alternative point of view or something they just don't want to address. You can't do that. When you're in government, you have to deal with the good, the bad, the ugly of whatever the media presents to you. And yes, I know some people will say, and you'll probably get a call after I'm done, but Stephen Harper had a whole setup for the media where he only asked three questions. <laughs> yes, I agree. That was done. It was not something I favored, but it was done long after I was there, and it wasn't the best way to handle it. But it, at least, if nothing else, they handled it, and they at least addressed it. So whoever the three, five, six questions were, Harper didn't obviously avoid them. When they were chosen, he picked them, and some of them were positive, some were, there, were negative, and he answered them. If Christia Freeland is ever going to become prime minister of this country one day, and one assumes that that's what her, you know, her ultimate goal is, you can't have an eye roll or a side eye every single time the media asks you <laughs> something you don't like. Answer it. <laughs> Are you surprised by the amount of coverage this conservative leadership race is getting? No. I'm not at all. And in fact, when, you're, when your intro came in, I actually am happy to see that. It's not, I agree that if you look at years past, it was more, well, more prevalent in U.S. politics and otherwise. But in Canada, I've noticed as leadership races have developed, and we're always about, you know, 10 to 20 years behind the U.S. on something, whatever the issue is, we're starting to move in that direction too. And I think it's good. You want to have a healthy debate. You want to have an intellectual discussion. You want ideas to be heard. And you want to have a leadership race where no matter whether you like an individual, dislike an individual, like the party, don't like the party, that it's a wide race where at least other people are running with different points of view. That's good. 
Obviously, you had a, you've done a couple of columns, one on uh, Pierre Polyev, the other uh, on uh, Charest. Uh, I yep. read the Charest one today. I've read the other one uh, in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, my question to you is, I believe the person who can unite not only the party, but the country will get the nod to do this. Uh, who is that in this party, in this group of people? Well, it's not a big secret. So you'll just start laughing since you've read both. You know, I endorsed Pierre Polyev yeah. a couple of days before he declared, and I just directly wrote in a piece that is on the website of the Post right now, and I believe will be in the print edition tomorrow. Typically, my columns run there. That I said that Charest is the wrong choice. So obviously, I believe that Polyev is the right way to go. You know, the media is obviously moving in a direction, Scott, or, or I shouldn't use as a general theme. A, a good percentage of the media is trying to focus or trying to claim that Pierre Polyevra represents some sort of a populist agenda, that he doesn't represent, you know, traditional Canadian conservatism, or that his ideas and views or values are out of touch or too old or too far linked with my old friend and boss, Stephen Harper, or what have you. It doesn't really matter. Um, Pierre Polyevra represents Canadian conservatism or modern small-c conservative values as they stand today which is obviously, I don't have to repeat everything, but you know my mantra, you know, more liberty, freedom, democracy, smaller government, lower taxes, more individual rights and freedoms. Can he unite everybody, though, Michael? Can he unite everybody? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. You see, that people always look towards, well, he's been an attack dog. And I've talked about this with you before. He's Hmm. an attack dog. He does this, he does that. He always tries to take you know, circle around the perimeter rather than going direct, you know, or he doesn't, pardon me, he doesn't circle around the perimeter. He goes directly for the heart of anyone. You know, how can you have someone like that? But that is obviously part of the passion that Pierre Polyevre has had. And unlike most of your listeners, I've known Pierre since he was an intern in Jason Kenney's office. I've known him a long time. And he has not only grown a lot as a person, you know, he has a young family, you know, he's obviously, you know, changing as we all change as we get older, but he has obviously continued to grow in terms of his knowledge and understanding, not only of conservatism, but the way government operates. He's been in Parliament a long time, and for that reason, he has vast amounts of experience that, sure, others do. Jean Charest certainly has experience, I'm not denying that, but Pierre Polyevre has a plenty of experience that he knows that message that messaging for the Conservative Party for conservatism or just for his own, you know, re-election bids has to be geared towards a certain public. You have to listen to the entire populace. Mm. So you run a leadership campaign one way, but you run a general campaign or a national campaign a completely different way. He gets it, he understands it, and yes, he can make that transition. Michael Tobe with us. You can read his latest in the National Post uh, tomorrow, the printed version, and of course on the website now, also with Troy Media, Looney Politics, and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks so much for the time. Have a great weekend. My pleasure. You too. Boy, there was a time when we would have Dr. Ahmad Khalid on every single day uh, at the early stages of this pandemic, and he was instrumental in in uh, bringing us information and and helping us weave our way through all of this. And um, and and thankfully, although I do miss him, uh, we haven't chatted in a while because we obviously haven't had the need. But this being uh, the second anniversary of uh, of COVID nineteen in this pandemic, and where we are. And 
and the debate that still continues, it's certainly time for an update. Dr. Ahmad Khalid with his health policy expert. He's here now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Same to you, Scott. Good to be back on your show. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Uh, although, again, you know, whenever I, I sound excited to say that, but it usually means it has something to do with the global pandemic. Uh, doctor, lots of chatter about masking as much as there was way back at the beginning when we were trying to get people to mask up. Now that the mandates are dropping, there's equally uh, as much debate. And, and I guess I can certainly understand that in hot spots like Toronto and, and Hamilton was where they want a bit more time um, uh, with the mandate in place. Uh, that being said, Dr. Bonnie Henry out in British Columbia announced uh, yesterday that today their masking mandate would be lifted and will be following on Ontario uh, March 21st after March break, getting the kids back uh, with uh, the mandatory mask drop. Now, it's still your choice. You're still more than welcome to wear it. It's just uh, that. It's a choice at this point. What are your thoughts at this point, doctor? Well, I think the evidence has been always clear and consistent about masking, that it is an effective health policy tool that it protects Canadians and, and the global population towards the risk of transmission of a respiratory illness. So we do know masks work. That evidence has not changed. However, the mandate around them is changing. And, and that, I think, is primarily around political pressure to drop the mandate. But also, we're not special in that I mean, Scott, that the rest of the world is dropping their mask mandate. Many countries yeah. across the world have already dropped their mask mandate. And it is exactly what you pointed out. It's now becoming a personal choice, whether you want to continue wearing it or not. And I think the best thing I can say about this, because I've been thinking quite a bit about it, is that it's going to come down to whether, you know, if you're going to drop down the mask uh, mandate, if you don't feel you want to continue wearing it, just be careful around people who are immunocompromised, your family members who are elder age, or that are undergoing cancer treatment or any kind of immunocompromised condition, you might want to keep wearing the mask around them specifically. And if you feel like you don't want to wear it uh, around other people, that's up to you. However, the evidence is so clear on their effectiveness. And again, you, you know, this isn't, you know, a, a mandate that says you have to take them off. It's just now uh, y- your choice. Um, many are concerned, and I had a, a person on the air yesterday that was concerned and said that the the case rates are higher now uh, that we're removing masking than they were when we started masking, to which my reply was back then it was a virus that was killing people and there was no vaccination. We didn't know anything about it. And as Dr. Bonnie Henry said, now we have a vaccination rate in both BC and in Ontario, 12 plus that are over 90% and a variant that is a lot less severe. Can you put this in perspective for us? Sure. So the difference is now that you're absolutely right. More than 90% of Ontarians have the two doses of the vaccine. So we have, in, a, in, a, in a essence, a herd immunity. The majority of our population has some kind of immunity or protection towards COVID-19. And what that essentially means is that if we do contract COVID-19, if you do get it, that means you're not gonna, you're very, very unlikely to develop severe symptoms that will lead you to death or an ICU. That's number one. And number two, also, we've had, now we've two years in, we have advances in the technology and the treatments towards COVID-19. And our health system has adapted over the number of months that we've been undergoing the pandemic to be able to respond to very severe cases that walk into our hospitals. And therefore, I think this is where the, the, the need to drop down the mask mandate is coming. Now, I do suspect that many people across the world, not just us, 
will continue to wear their masks. They got used to wearing them. They liked it. They provided them protection against the flu and other respiratory infections, not just COVID-19. So, you know, we're still going to see many people wearing it. And I think the emphasis here, Scott, is that we, we need to be a society that we don't judge each other for wearing it or not wearing it. We need to be considerate that it's now become, becoming a personal choice. And by that, we can't provide judgment on people that decide to wear them and people that decide not to wear them. What are your thoughts on the kids and heading back to class? Uh, I think that, you know, kids heading back to class is, suspect, is expected and been wanted for a long period of time. I think we're all looking at a life now where the pandemic is behind us. And our projections show that. Uh, the good news is that the pandemic will be behind us soon and that we're looking now at life past pandemic with some measures that will stay in place. I think for, you know, as I always said, COVID-19 will remain with us. It's not going to just magically disappear. We're just going to learn how to live with it. Uh, we talked about this a lot, Doctor, during the, the the midst of this global pandemic. It exposed a lot of weak spots in, in everything, including our our fragile health care system. Our health care workers have been asking for help for decades. Are we? Do you think this is all of a sudden? As we do eventually come out of this, now unfortunately we are you know we're we're, we're faced with a terrible conflict in Ukraine right now, and 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 that's continuing. Sort of, it seems we're you know the the uh, the feeling of the global pandemic and such. That being said, is now the time to start focusing on what we need to do to our healthcare system to fix those weak links. Absolutely. And I can assure you that the government is doing that both at the federal and the provincial level. And many people who work within the healthcare system are uh, actively being engaged in discussions and putting forward action plans to figure out what, what do we need? Where were the gaps and how do we address them? Number one is human personnel. So we know that the system exposed the weaknesses we have and how we reinforce and incentivize our healthcare providers. How do we provide support to their mental health capacity? We know we had a huge shortage of nurses during this pandemic and that we need to think about ways to retain nurses, but also incentivize them and pay them the fair amount uh, for the services they provide. The gaps were clear and now it's up to us decision makers who are in the system to actually put forward not just talking points, but action plans that get at addressing those gaps because the reality is whether it's a, it's a natural disaster, floods in BC, or whether it's the next pandemic, our system will continuously be challenged. This is not the end of the earthquakes that happen to our system, and we need to be able to strengthen the foundation of our system so that the next crisis that comes, it can sustain that no matter how big or large that scale of the disaster might be. Dr. Ahmad Khalid with us, health policy expert on this second anniversary, if we can call it that, of COVID-19, how far we've come and what we need to do moving forward. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. We'll chat again. Same to you. Have a great weekend. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Let's find out what's going on in the United States and the latest from President Biden and his reaction to uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Reggie Cicchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News, and is with us now. Reggie, uh, wondering, uh, President Biden uh, announced today some further changes to the trade relationship with the uh, with Russia and and their favored position as a trading partner. Can you explain to us what that means? 
Yeah, essentially this follows the move of what Canada did last week when they uh, took Russia off of the most favored nation trade. And essentially what that does is allow for countries to freely trade back and forth without um, tariffs that may prohibit things or, or make things much more expensive. Uh, and with the United States now uh, removing most favored nation status, along with several other G7 and European nations, uh, this is further isolating Russia in its ability to make money uh, by both its imports and its exports. Uh, this is uh, a move that Congress is going to have to act on. It needs, uh, it needs uh, a draft uh, legislation from Congress to be able to pass and have the president sign it, uh, but it does have bipartisan support. So this is just another kind of attempt to push the Kremlin into the corner. Is this lip service? Does this have bite? Well, I mean, look, it, it, Russia has a lot of exports that uh, are going to be hit with uh, with a, a much bigger tariff than they had at one point, uh, mostly on its uh, its mining resources, things like diamonds and uranium. Uh, these are going to cost far more money to import into the United States, and they are going to come at a cost to uh, the Russian economy, which at this point is already cratering. Uh, you know, when you're talking about diamonds and uranium, that's one thing, but Russia is also a big exporter of things uh, like seafood, think caviar or, or king crabs, these are also, uh, you know, uh, if not, you know, a half billion up to more than a billion dollars worth of exports on a yearly basis. So this is, again, going to chew away uh, at an already battered economy across Russia uh, and could potentially lead to further dissent as more Russians get a grip uh, of what's actually going on when it's much more difficult to see that because they don't have access to social media. Uh, we certainly have been following this convoy. We know uh, when it, put, it it was put in position, and then we started uh, started to see it increase in size, and then it sort of became stagnant and, and 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 didn't do much for the longest time. We're hearing that's on the move again. What's the U.S. reaction to that? So there's concern uh, that that convoy is starting to move and disperse because it potentially means that uh, that Russian troops are now moving towards different axes as they move in uh, on the capital city uh, of Kiev, and it follows uh, aggression by the Kremlin uh, and this kind of quote-unquote military operation or war that is underway, uh, that they're starting to target more cities and circle in more cities, not only in the east and south, but now starting to see uh, shelling uh, across the west. This is a concern for the west. This is a concern for the United States, but ultimately this is a concern for NATO, because some of that shelling that we saw uh, through the early morning hours in Key, uh, in uh, Ukraine uh, were within, you know, 60 or 70 miles of the p- border with Poland. Uh, and, you know, that, that's encroaching on the West's doorstep. Uh, we certainly know that uh, there's a line here the U.S. Or, or NATO does not want to cross because obviously Ukraine is not a member of NATO. Crossing that line would certainly trigger World War III. Is there a line here, Reggie? Is there a point that, you know, somewhere in a U.S. war room or an ally war room, once they get or do to this point or do this, then all bets are off? Do we know what that is? Well, look, you know, the United States uh, via the president uh, just today when he was speaking on these sanctions made a point that, you know, the United States is not going to put combat boots on the ground. They're not going to put American jets in the sky over Ukraine. But if this were to spill into territory occupied by uh, a NATO ally, then the United States by obligation would be there to protect that uh, country and the entire bloc. So, you know, there is a concern here that if this escalates outside the Ukrainian border, then this is going to lead to a much bigger conflict. But they're trying to avoid 
avoid that by not having the United States in direct uh, kind of competition here uh, with Russia. That's why we saw the United States uh, kind of, you know, put their back up about this jet transfer out of Poland in towards a, a Russian airbase, uh, rather an American airbase uh, in Germany, because they do not want things to escalate further than they are, especially with these ongoing threats uh, that the Kremlin is making about a potential chemical attack. Obviously, both sides of the House very united on this. We saw that during the State of the Union speech. Has this done anything to bring uh, to close the divisiveness? So look, there are some Republicans that are still uh, calling out the administration for not having acted sooner by putting sanctions in place sooner as a, as a proactive measure and not a reactive response. Uh, the, the, the White House has come out to say, look, if we would have done that, it could have been an escalation. This could have started a lot sooner, and we wouldn't have been able to have that intelligence that really helped us uh, kind of keep Russia at bay and get a better ta- idea as to what they were doing. But Republicans and Democrats are aligned uh, on this uh, ability to move forward in assisting Ukraine. There's reporting out today that Republican minority Senate leader uh, 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 Mitch McConnell had a conversation with the Democrats asking them to increase the amount of spending uh, to be able to fund and, and, and give money to uh, the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian uh, military by the billions of dollars. So there is a real concerted effort here for bipartisanship to assist uh, Ukraine uh, in this battle against Russia. It's rare. It doesn't extend to the domestic agenda, but it does show that in war times, uh, a president acting like a wartime president can rally his troops, aka Congress. Reggie Giacchini with us, Washington co- uh, correspondent with Global News. Watch uh, Global Tonight for more on all of this. Thank you, Reggie. Much appreciated. Be well. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Um Boy, uh, the situation continues in Ukraine. Day 16 at this point. Uh, the United States ask, uh, adding more uh, sanctions to uh, Russia in the sense of taking them off their most favored uh, trade nation list, which obviously makes it a little bit more difficult for uh, Russia to uh, to do trade throughout North America. And the convoy, the infamous convoy that we've heard so much about, is uh, moving again and appears to be splitting up and uh, getting into some sort of strategic position and uh, many are watching that as well also the human toll is just absolutely incredible and we've all seen the images of families who uh, just over two weeks ago were trying to live what was seemingly a normal life and now uh, have packed up lock stock and barrel whatever they can carry and uh, and, and heading for for safer uh, uh, safer places including Poland over two million people have left uh, Ukraine at this point uh, what is the extent of the ref- ref- uh, refugee crisis how is it different from other refugee crises we have experienced in the past let's bring in Edward Koning Assistant Professor, Department of Political Science, University of Guelph, and he is with us now. Edward, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, I am. Thanks for having me. So, uh, you know, over the t- over the course of time, we've seen conflict, uh, obviously seen refugees, uh, Canada doing their part, obviously, to try to bring as many or help as many people as they possibly can. What's the difference with this situation when it comes to the refugee crisis? Well, I think what we're seeing is a pretty stark difference, especially if we compare the current uh, response to the response to the uh, Syrian refugee crisis uh, a few years ago. So I think to to sum up the main difference is that with the Syrian refugee crisis, especially if we uh, zoom in on um, the response of European government leaders, was to try to reduce the inflow. You know, several countries unilaterally closed their borders, different governments tried to pass the buck to each other. 
heads of government making public statements, worrying that uh, a large refugee intake would disrupt their societies, um, EU leaders making repeated statements that refugees should not bother trying to come to Europe in the first place, and perhaps most interesting of all, a, a rather dubious arrangement um, with Turkey to, uh, to further stop the inflow. And so far, at least, the response to the Ukrainian um, refugee crisis has uh, uh, thankfully been um, much more accommodating. Um, and at the very least, uh, there seems to be safeguard of temporary protection for Ukrainian nationals. And, uh, and so, not, sorry, go ahead, Edward. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so at the very least, uh, what we're seeing is a... Uh, a more accommodating response in Europe in particular. We can zoom in some countries. You, you just mentioned Poland, um, which I think is a very interesting country to to, uh, to zoom in on, especially because when it came to the Syrian crisis, um, Poland was very, very adamant that it didn't want to have any business um, in um, hosting uh, refugees who were escaping the Syrian civil war. So the the difference is very, is very stark. Um, to be clear, I'm not saying that Ukrainian refugees are undeserving of our protection, um, um, or even that the EU, EU is doing everything it possibly can at the moment. I'm just mostly pointing out that what's interesting um, from the perspective of someone comparing those refugee crises is that the response uh, to the Syrian and Ukraine, Ukrainian crisis is pretty large. Was that because the situation was different and security was much more of a concern uh, with the Syrian crisis? There were security issues. Is that accurate? Um, I'm not. I'm not fully sure uh, um, what kind of issues you're you have in mind. I think the main the main difference is that what we're seeing is that uh, people in Europe um, and arguably also in Canada are more likely to identify with the plight of Ukrainian refugees um, compared to the plight of Syrian re refugees. And, uh, and so this has, this I, I remember has, during the Syrian, Syrian refugee crisis, though, there were concerns over lack of documentation, lack of ID, um, lack of connection to various uh, organizations, uh, that was a concern I remember during the Syrian refugee crisis. Uh, is that a concern during the Ukraine crisis? Um, well, I, you've you've heard uh, some politicians uh, that are a bit uh, more cautious and um, in you know, like, and with all due respect, Edward, with all due respect, Edward, it, it sort of sounds like this could be a racial issue. Is it that, or is it a security issue? Um, well, I don't know if it's necessarily exclusively about race. It might very well have something to do with it. And with some politicians, it's difficult to escape the impression that it is. But first and foremost, I think it's a reflection of the fact that for many people, this doesn't feel like um, Russia invading just Ukraine, but that it is an attack on the West and in Europe in particular. Right. There's a long history of... Um, of tension about which way that Ukraine would go um, with um, Russian minorities in the East looking to intensify its, its bonds with Russia, whereas the Western part is very keen on strengthening its side. And let's not forget that the previous time uh, that conflict broke out in Ukraine, it was in direct response to an association agreement uh, between EU and um, so, so what's your conclusion here, so what, 
what's my conclusion? Mm. Uh, my, my conclusion is is that uh, is that the, the difference is very stark, and it is uh, it is partially related to these kinds of security concerns, especially in um, uh, in regards to the to sort of like the overall threat of of Putin for for Europe. Um, but that other factors might have something to do with it as well. Edward Koning with us, Assistant Professor, Department of Political Science, University of Guelph. Edward, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Yeah, my pleasure. Have a good one. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. Talk about what's been going on this week. And there's been plenty. Alyssa joins us now. Thanks for the time, Alyssa. I hope you're doing well. As always, and you too, Scott. Uh, masking. Let's talk about masking. And um, obviously, March 21st, the masking mandate in Ontario now becomes voluntary. Uh, kids can go into school uh, again without a mask. It's voluntary. Dr. Bonnie Henry did the same thing yesterday in B.C. They actually dropped their uh, mask mandate today, a full day, uh, 10 days ahead of Ontario. And we'll do the same with the kids going back to school. Uh, in Hamilton and Toronto, the boards are saying that uh, they're going to keep it extended till i believe uh the middle of april uh how is that all going to play out do you think you know it's interesting i think that you know when the government says no masking uh the first thing i think of is oh so there's a provincial election in june and you want us to forget about covid by then so if we start now we just might um you know, I think. Wait a sec. It's not Alyssa. Alyssa, it's not like they said no masking. <laughs> they just said it was voluntary. It's not like no masking. You cannot wear your mask in the school. I was at my kids' oh, no. junior football banquet last night, and it was a great occasion. And people are complaining that there's going to be graduation. Are you kidding me? Anyway, go ahead. Okay. Now that I know how you feel about that, um, I think I think you know what Scott. The whole thing about masking, uh, we're hearing a, a lot of dueling narratives. Okay. We're hearing that this is time we can start, we can take their, our own uh, opinion, and we can decide whether we're going to mask or not mask. But then, you know, you hear about uh, some of the experts from the science table and others, and they say, you know what, it might just be a bit too early. So originally, if you recall, a couple of weeks ago when we talked about this, it was like they're going to drop the mask mandate. And now it's become you have a choice whether to wear it or not. So again, you know, by putting the onus on the, you know, the citizen to make their own opinion, I think that, listen, that's obviously the way this is going to go down the road. And I think that by making it arbitrary, whether you're depending on how you feel, are you going to mask, are you not going to mask? I, you know, I think that's going to be up to the individual's decision. But clearly there are some school boards that are still nervous about this. They're still a little shaky about it. So they're going to make their own decision. That being said, what happens when the rubber hits the road on the 21st and some kid goes into a school where the board says you got to wear a mask and they're, I'm not wearing a mask? You know, we don't know. And here, that's the big unknown. I think so we do, what? Alyssa. I think we do. Well, I think we know which one trumps the other. Well, that's an interesting use of choice of words, but <laughs> I would say that, you know, I, I think one, well, yeah, you say to me, we know which one trumps the other. I'm not so sure we do, Scott. I'm not so sure we do. And I think it's like, it's just not sending the kid because we know who's behind the kid. It's the guardian or the parent. Yeah. So, you know, you know help it's amazing how their like opinion, it. it's amazing how their opinion doesn't count, but the boards does. Well, you know, again, because you can you're more they're not saying you have to take off your mask. They're just saying it's your choice now. And everybody positions it like, well, there's no mask now. Well, no, it's up to you. 
but it'll be interesting to, to see how those kids are treated too. So, you know, if a kid walks in without a mask and that's their right to walk in without a mask, are they going to be ostracized by their fellow classmates? I don't know. Again, I'm at the fo- I'm at the football banquet last night and some are, some aren't. I don't think they're going to be chastising each other at all. You know what? Let's talk about it on March 22nd. All right. Let's talk about, uh, you know what? But here you go. Dr. Bonnie Henry, come on. She was the poster person for whenever Doug Ford did something wrong, they always pointed to Bonnie Henry. As of today, the masking. Yeah. She's a member of NASI. How can that not be? Uh, but I digress. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, uh, she like they've listed their they've lifted their mask mandatory mask mandate. It's optional. Again, they say the same thing. You know, in a high risk situation with lots of people, whatever you should wear your mask. But it's now up to you. They're doing it a full ten days ahead of Ontario. All of a sudden, now Dr. Henry's mud. You know what, Scott, when you look, when I look through my social media feed, I look through my Twitter feed and we're talking about removing masks. Um, you know, there are people who is now, now the tide is going to turn. Before, if you didn't wear a mask, you got the dirty looks. Now, if you do wear a mask, you're going to get glares. So we're already hearing about interactions at gas stations and public places about what do you have your mask on for? So uh, first of all, I urge you to go to Twitter because some of the responses are absolutely fabulous. But I think that the narrative will turn that the people who are wearing masks are going to be those that are going to be seen as the goody two-shoes, that are being overly cautious, and want you just live a little, learn how to live with the disease. So that's going to be interesting. It'll be fascinating to see. All right. Um, uh, I don't know if you saw this or not, but CBC's Travis Danraj uh, asked uh, Christia Freeland and Melanie Jolie why they were in Europe. And boy, did they dress him down uh, and, and said, well, you know, many are he said many are asking why you guys are in Europe and, uh, you know, why so many of you are here because there's quite a few ministers there. And, uh, you know, this is all a photo op. And she said, I don't know anybody else that's saying that. Which and then Melanie Jolie said, "I reject the question. Uh, is this Operation Photo Op? Um, he's there. He's 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 preaching unity. But what else is he doing? You know what? I'm not going to defend any politician for the reason why they go to Europe. And I think that visiting the Queen after she had COVID was probably the the absolute right thing to do, Scott. So while you're there, let's make the most of it and do what you can do. At least he's not changing into costume." Like that's okay. <laughs> you know somebody okay? somebody did say that, that he was going to show up in some sort of um, you know uh, Ukrainian uh, traditional costume yeah the, yeah but but you know and I think that every politician every head of state uh, has to do these visits whether you like them or not whether this particular reporter who is known like that is def- definitely his pattern and he's always you know doing those digging questions and I think that they expected it from him. And do I think that... Wait a sec, that was was a perfectly good question, Alyssa. People are asking that question. Let me finish, but you can't reject it. Whether you like the reporter or not, and you, you you know, behind the scenes, you talk to each other, and let's say Christian, Melanie, go, you know, we're just going to dress him down. Well, you know what, you might feel good about that in the moment, but that's just really short-term gain for long-term pain. So if you think that he's ever going to let up, and he never, ever will that you just have to take the question, you have to answer it seriously, and move on. Why make a mountain out of a molehill by dressing down a reporter who is basically just doing their job and just answer the question without a side of, of snark? Uh, I've got about 30 seconds left. Are you surprised that we're so much, we're paying so much attention towards a conservative leadership race, which, a race which is six months away? 
No, because look who's coming into the, throwing their head into the ring. You've got Jean Charest, who is, uh, listen, I would vote for Jean Charest, but I don't mm. know who the liberal candidate would be. And Patrick Brown has thrown his hat into the ring, or soon will. So you know what? These names are starting to bubble up, and they're starting to cause some excitement. And But you know what, Scott? Until the Conservative Party decides who they are and what their message is and what they'll stand for, it doesn't matter who's leading them. That's a very good point. Very good point. And I think what some of the interest is as well, people just want some sort of strong uh, opposition. I didn't even get the chance to ask you about the Patrick Brown CTV thing. We're going to save that for next time. Uh, okay. Thank you, Alyssa. As always, have yourself a great weekend. Okay. Stay safe, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, hope you are doing well. Better. Scott, a Friday evening. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, and uh, your thoughts on, uh, obviously, March 21st, masking regulations, masking mandatory uh, masking is uh, no longer. It's completely voluntary. It's up to you. It's your choice. You want to wear one, you're more than welcome to. You don't want to, that's okay, too. Uh, British Columbia, as of today, no masking man uh, mandates. The mandatory masking has been dropped for everyone. And then come kids at school after March break, March 21st, the same as Ontario, uh, going back uh, with a voluntary masking policy. Uh, that being said, Toronto School Boards Hamilton have uh, decided to keep it implemented until April 15th. Where do you think this is going? Uh, you know what, look, it, this thing has been, we talked about yesterday, this has been an issue from the beginning that if you do one thing, half the population is screaming at you for doing it, and if you do something else, half the population is screaming that you've done the other thing. And Yep. Uh, you know what? So, so uh, like I, I've thought for a long time now that we can put some of the decision making in the hands of the people. I, I don't. I understand we had a pandemic, and I'm not saying that there should have been no oversee oversight overriding rules or whatever. But at, at a certain point, I do think we can trust the public to make some of their own decisions and take some of their own health choices into their hands. Because Scott, we do this with literally everything else. Yeah, we do it with literally every other health decision that we have in this country that you that you may go to your doctor and he may say, Scott Thompson, you know what? Um, your liver is failing. We really need to give you a liver transplant. Even with that, you have the option to say, you know what? No, thanks. I'll take my chances. And if I die, I die. I mean, you would like to think you wouldn't, but you we have these choices. Now, some will say, yeah, but if we take masks off, you could this could affect other people. Therefore, it's not you making a decision for you. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, however, once again, if you are that concerned, you have the option to have not just two, but three vaccines and you can still wear a mask and you can still social distance and you can still stay home. We're not forcing you to go into some sort of, you know, downtown public square and lick the nozzle of a water fountain. Uh, you you can look after decisions for yourself. And, and I think that at this point, when you consider that everything we're hearing is that the outcomes of this is largely either a flu or a cold if you have symptoms, I don't think that that's an unrealistic thing at this point to say we don't need to be as overseeing of everything as we were before. 
it's amazing how everybody says, you know, this is just Doug Ford's politics because he's got an, an election coming up this summer. Uh, but it's not politics in the left-leaning world of Hamilton politics uh, trying to do something that the conservative government isn't doing. Um, well, you know, is, BC, and, is BC right-wing? <laughs> there you go. BC's NDP. You know, like, okay, so is that politics? So if that's politics, exactly. why, why is it their politics? So it's not really right-wing or left-wing politics. What What's the politics? And, and look, again, I, I don't doubt that there are in any government decision, there are political calculations that are made. You, uh, that that I assume that that's always going to be the case. But for me, and maybe this differs from other people, but for me, I want the political calculation, no matter what brand of government it is, to lean towards allowing people to make individual choices for themselves as the default position, unless there is some overwhelming reason why that can't be the case. And at this point, I don't think there is that overwhelming reason. And if so you now tell we... the governments, you've had two years of controlling everything, it is time to begin pulling back and letting people getting back to making decisions for themselves. I, I, that, that would be my take on this. So what do you think is going to happen on March 21st when somebody shows up to school without a mask on and the board says you have to have one, but the province says you don't? Well, the board the board will be allowed, I'm assuming, to tell someone not to go to the school or not to be allowed in the school. They're, you know, it, it, look, it, it, this is one of the real concerns that I think we come out of this pandemic from. More divisive. And that is that is that well that we have allowed for so long now we have allowed governments and bodies to make decisions unquestioned. And and some of these things, many of these things have been with good reason, but we are now going to be forcing these groups, governments and others, to wean off that power. And we know that one thing governments of every single stripe, it's not conservative, not liberal, whatever, every single stripe, one thing governments hate doing is giving back powers that they have accumulated. If you go look through history, it doesn't happen often. So this is going to be a weaning process. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up next after the 6 o'clock news. You can also read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a great weekend. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.